3: Texas and Florida reverse course, shutting down businesses and restricting other activities.
4: It's not going well. I have to tell you, it's not going well.
5: Dr. Fauci points blame at younger Americans for not taking the virus seriously enough. Outbreaks grow. Florida and Texas are among the hardest hit states. There's fear the sick will soon overwhelm hospitals.
1: An ugly close, an ugly session.
5: Markets react Stocks sink. This CNBC special report, markets in turmoil, starts right now. Here's Sarah Eisen.
3: Welcome, everyone. We begin tonight with the dramatic spike in virus cases throughout many states, most notably Texas and Florida, both states rolling back reopenings. Dr. Anthony Fauci sounding new warnings today.
4: Florida, California, Arizona, Texas, places like that, there really is a difficult situation because as individual states, cities, locations are opening up, uh, they're, they're really seeing a, 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 a serious concern of increasing cases. And it isn't just because they're doing more testing. There are more cases, there are more hospitalizations in some of those places, and soon you'll be seeing more deaths. If you say you're going to go back into lockdown, there'll be an absolute pushback on that. You might have to do it. You never take that off the table. But before you do that, how about doing the things that we said all along you should do? For goodness sakes, avoid crowds. Wear masks. When you see mostly young people, I totally understand the desire and the urge since you've been locked down so long to go out and just let it, let it rip, as they say. Just go out and have a great time. You've got to understand that, A, we're seeing more and more situations where young, otherwise healthy people who get infected are getting seriously ill. So you have a responsibility to yourself. But as important is that when you get infected, even if you don't have any symptoms, you are part of the dynamic process of propagating a pandemic that's killing people.
3: Texas has become one of the nation's most critical hotspots. There's fear things are so bad. Hospitals are on the verge of being overwhelmed. Dr. Salil Bhandari is an emergency room doctor at Houston Memorials Herman and is with us live tonight. Dr. Bhandari, give us a sense of what it's like there right now.
6: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a very critical time in in this city without a doubt. just just to give you an, an example or, or an idea of where we're at, uh, prior to June 1st, we had about 160 patients across our hospital systems that were infected with COVID, and, and now we're at about 500 patients uh, throughout our hospital systems that are infected with COVID. And even yesterday, we had 6,000 new cases uh, in Texas uh, of, of COVID. So there's definitely a, a high degree of concern amongst everybody here at the hospital, in our hospital system, and, and all throughout the city.
3: What are you seeing in terms of the ages of people being hospitalized and those being admitted to the ICU? Because we're hearing a lot that it is younger people contracting the disease and, and those are the new cases. But if so, then, then why are they being hospitalized and, and why are they being admitted to the ICU? We did not see those young ages when we went through this here in New York.
6: Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's definitely a paradigm shift that we're seeing a little bit more uh, than we were seeing before. Uh, There are a larger percentage uh, of younger patients uh, that are coming into the hospital compared to before. Uh, The good thing is, is that usually they don't end up staying in the hospital for as long as some of the older patients. Uh, But that definitely is something new that we are seeing uh, compared to before, is that slightly larger percentage of patients uh, of the younger population.
3: What's your capacity at this point? Can the hospitals handle the surge?
6: Yeah, and that's a great question. I think there's been a lot of misinformation about that, uh, but I just wanted to give you a better understanding uh, of where we're at in that specifically. Um, Right now, the the Texas Medical Center, uh, we have 1,330 beds that are available normally. Our normal capacity is 1,330. And yes, those beds are, are pretty much full at this point in time. However, uh, we have prepared for uh, a surge capacity as well. And that's about 373 additional beds uh, as that surge capacity. If those fill up, there are about 500 additional beds beyond that potentially uh, that we, we could utilize as well. So right now uh, we have extra beds to, to care for some of those people using our surge capacity. But if the rates continue as they are right now, if the the rates continue to the degree that they are right now, two weeks from now could be a very, very different story.
3: Tell us about some of the treatments that you are using. Do you have access to remdesivir? And if so, do you have to ration it?
6: Yeah, so, so we're definitely using a remdesivir for sure, in a lot of the uh, a lot of the ICU patients, especially. There have been some new trials uh, that have come out from the UK about dexameth about some steroids as well that can be used, such as dexamethasone, uh, that we are looking into uh, in addition. But at the end of the day, there's still no vaccine for this. So we still need to do everything that we can uh, to ward off people coming into the hospitals. And and it's all about all those preventative measures that that we've been saying for a long time that, that I think Houston really needs to make sure that we follow and do all of those things. Otherwise, two weeks from now, we're gonna be in a very, very difficult situation, even worse than now that we may not be able to come back from. But right now we can handle it, but we just hope it doesn't get Even worse than it is right now.
3: Governor Abbott did roll back some of the reopening plans today, including shutting down bars and rafting. Is that enough from your perspective or or does he need to close more?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely a needed step uh, without a doubt. We may end up needing more than that. I mean here in the city of Houston, uh, Judge Lena Hidalgo has issued a stay-at-home advisory uh, for for all residents of Houston and I think at the end of the day we, we all know uh, what to do for this virus. There's no mystery as to how to, to flatten the curve and bring down the curve. We know that, what works and what doesn't. We know that we just need to stay at home and, and avoid contact with all those uh, e- extraneous people or going out to different places. It, we know what to do. And I think we may end up needing more than that, but we'll, we'll kind of see how it goes. Uh, but for right now, that was definitely a needed and a good step.
3: Dr. Bandari, thank you very much for taking the time tonight. We wish you well in this fight on the front lines. No, thank you. Florida setting a new daily record for COVID-19 cases today as well. Dr. Maris Levine is the director of the Center of Leadership in Public Health Practice at the University of South Florida. Good evening, Dr. Levine. Thank you for joining us tonight.
7: Good evening. It's good to be with you.
3: What are you seeing in terms of the Florida cases? How localized are there and and how much is just community spread that's, that's everywhere in the state?
7: Well, there's significant community spread, it's definitely worse in the more populated areas, but we've had some issues in our rural areas too, particularly with individuals who are in the migrant farming community.
3: How are you protecting Florida's elderly population, which is one of the biggest in the country?
7: Well, there were efforts initially to focus on the congregate care facilities And in effect, they've been locked down. The problem we had initially was that uh, workers coming in and out were uh, spreading uh, coronavirus. So now there is a mandated testing uh, for all those facilities and we have it under a little better control. I think that was a really important step for Florida to try to decrease the death rate from COVID.
3: Are there efforts underway for contact tracing, Dr. Levine, in in any way that is effective at? isolating cases and controlling the spread?
7: There've been efforts and you know the, the infrastructure wasn't really there to do what we needed to do. There've been efforts to add workforce and to increase the capacity. But right now, quite frankly, with the rapid rise in cases, I don't see how contact tracing can keep up with this and do what it's really intended to do, which is to snuff out a smaller outbreaks before they get larger.
3: So what is the hospital situation there? Are they equipped? Is there enough capacity to deal with it, enough beds?
7: There is for the moment. Florida has a good bed capacity in general. Like many other areas, when elective procedures started up again, the hospitals got very busy because there were a lot of people who put off uh, procedures and put off care. So the hospitals are pretty busy right now. They do have capacity. The challenge is that we've seen pretty rapid rise in cases, and we're starting to see younger people in the hospital. Now, that's better than having folks who are more vulnerable and older folks in general because they tend to last longer in the hospitals. The younger folks are staying less. But the problem right now is we're seeing the beginnings of the spread from the younger population to the more vulnerable and older populations in Florida, and that's very concerning.
3: Dr. Levine, uh, Dr. Fauci today did mention this idea that the task force is looking at pool testing people, mixing together a number of samples, say 25, and testing them as one to figure out whether you need to test people individually. Is that, is that something that could work and could mitigate the spread?
7: It doesn't mitigate the spread. The issue with testing that we need is a rapid turnaround. So in that we could do more testing and potentially turn it around quicker that may be helpful. Uh, we've definitely ramped up testing in Florida. I think there were over 70,000 um, results that came back today. Uh, but the problem is that the percentage of those positive is going up, meaning that we have more disease in the community and then likely, in all likelihood, a lot more community spread.
3: Also wanted to ask you about some news that's coming out of Europe. Uh, the New York Times is reporting they're very close on putting in place a policy that would would ban travelers from the United States going to Europe. Is that fair?
7: Well, I can understand that. It's really unfortunate that we're in the situation we're in. Your last speaker talked about uh, we know what to do. We just need everyone to do it. This is a health issue, not a political issue. We actually have more evidence now than ever that wearing a face covering can be extremely helpful. Uh, but we need a large percentage of our community population to do that for it to be effective. So, if we could do the things that we know will work the physical distancing, the face coverings, and the hygienic practices uh, we could potentially keep this economy going. But right now, we're in a pretty bad place, if, particularly if we can't get people mobilized to do what they need to do.
3: Dr. Marissa Levine, thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate your You're time. Governor Abbott in Texas slowing down those reopenings and rolling others in the Lone Star State. That includes shutting down bars and scaling back restaurant capacity. Steve Adler is the mayor of Austin and is with us tonight. Mr. Mayor, thank you for joining us tonight. Is that enough? Did the governor go far enough toward rolling back the reopening?
8: You know, we're appreciative that he, that he did that. Uh, you know, there's probably more that, that, that we would like to see happen. Uh, and we're going to continue talking to the governor's office. But at this point, we're in crunch time. You know, I'm appreciative that you recognize that if we stayed on our current trajectory, our hospitals are overwhelmed uh, early July, early to mid July. Uh, This is the time when my community now really needs to come together and and be just religious about wearing face coverings and doing the social distancing.
3: You're obviously a, a blue mayor in a red state or a red governor. How has that helped or hurt the, the the effort here? How is that challenged? I mean it has unfortunately become a political issue in this country
8: you know and, it, and, it, and it's horrible that something that is just pure public health would become a political issue uh, but you know following the lead of what's happening with the president in washington uh, it, 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 it it's happening. Uh, I have too many people in my community working off of what's happening with the the president that don't think that this virus is real, uh, that don't appreciate the importance of wearing face coverings. Uh, and my governor then opened up our economy and did it too quickly and did it in phases but didn't didn't analyze what the numbers were in between moving from one phase to the next phase to see what would happen. And the messaging has not been as strong as it needs to be throughout this process that you can't open the economy without the, the, the quid pro quo, without the community also being just vigilant with respect to wearing face coverings and social distancing. And that lack of connection, I think, is uh, one of the key reasons why we're in the situation we're in right now.
3: I know you've been pushing for, for masks. What else have you been doing, Mayor Adler, to prepare? I mean, unlike New York, you've had months now to at least help get hospitals in the right shape and contact tracing and everything else that, that could help us fight this. How have you used those that time?
8: You know, we're in a lot better position than, than, than we were back in March. And, and I think uh, New York and some of the other cities uh, were in a much better position with the personal protective equipment and the supplies. Uh, real importantly, we now understand the, 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 the virus better and the hospital stays has been reduced from what it was in, in New York. But we've been able to model the virus. We've been able to take the experience we had in shutting it down in, in March and, and April so that we can model now. We, we have a pretty good idea of of what our triggers are when we're going to have to to return to a, to a shelter in place if our if our city is not able to change its behavior sufficiently uh, we have a better indication of of when our triggers are that we're going to have to pull the the, the the string on that. This is information we did not have three months ago when we didn't understand the virus.
3: What are you telling businesses right now about whether they should close their doors whether they should? make their customers wear masks. I mean, so much of it is on their shoulders now without any kind of federal policies.
8: It is on their shoulders. And quite frankly, I wish my governor was just making it mandatory that everybody in the state had to wear a mask whenever they were around other people. Um, We had that order. Uh, It was mandatory people started wearing the mask. The governor took that away from us. Uh, We now have it back a little bit, uh, but it's only through businesses, which means we're not covering people who are not in businesses. But we have a lot of support from the business community right now because they, more than anybody else, understand uh, that... If people are not wearing masks, if people are not changing their behaviors, then then the businesses are going to to lose the opportunity to be able to stay open. So our Chamber of Commerce just released a a wonderful campaign about Mm -hmm. uh, being uh, uh, a city of us uh, and, and, and pushing for people to wear masks. We're getting a lot of support. We were asked by many of our businesses to try to get back yeah. to a mandatory mask situation. They understand the importance, uh, and, and big, really our biggest obstacle at this point is the messaging coming out of Washington, DC.
3: So well, mayor Adler, ha- have you been in communication with the governor? It seems like you're really at odds here over this issue.
8: Well, have been in communication with the governor, urging him to, to take steps to, to, to pull back, and I'm appreciative that he's done that today. Uh, closing bars is, a, is, a, is an important thing. You know, you have to, you know, we're, we're different parties and we certainly have, have butted heads a lot on a lot of different issues. Uh, I think he's one of the first Republican governors to pull back today, and I'm happy to see it. Uh, Democratic and Republican mayors in our, in our state were asking him to, to do this kind of thing for us. Uh, and, and quite frankly, um, now's crunch time and we need everybody focused.
3: Mayor Steve Adler, thank you for joining us tonight from Austin. Sarah, thank you. Here's what's coming up
5: next.
9: During a dark time, something really special and beautiful.
5: They do, but that's far from the full story. It's in their own words, next tonight. Before the break, our country on this Friday night, June 26th.
3: Day 180 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus. American Airlines plans to resume full flights July 1st. Flights right now on American are running at a limit of 70% capacity. New Jersey schools will have an in-person classes this fall, but with masks and social distancing along with other health guidelines. And the number of homeowners delaying mortgage payments due to the pandemic rose sharply in the past week. Gatherings of more than 10 people in New York In New York City, still not permitted, which makes a big wedding celebration pretty much impossible right now. But that didn't stop Regina Jirasi and Matt Weber from tying the knot on Zoom. Here are the newlyweds in their own words.
9: You know, I said to her probably every single day since we got engaged that I can't wait to marry you. And just making it a reality was wish come true for me
10: we ended up actually having about 150 people we had the
9: minister on our makeshift altar that we put in our apartment um on one view and then the viewing gallery from another computer looking at us
0: so we did a cake cutting we had a champagne toast we had a first dance we tried to do all the traditional things as best as we could
9: a lot of people dressed up even you know they got dressed up it was something for them, them to feel that sense of community that was lacking during the quarantine.
0: It was the same love and happiness that what, what I would imagine you would feel in a regular wedding
9: you know we really wanted to have something for people to remember during a dark time something really special and beautiful
0: we will eventually have our big celebration physically in person with everyone but the most important thing is that we're married (laughs) and we're happy and we are ready to start our lives as husband and wife
3: the couple tell CNBC they were planning to go to Spain for their honeymoon, but those plans fell through. Instead, they are planning a trip to Napa, California, where they got engaged. Moving on, it was a big week for sports. Several tennis players contracted the virus. The Kentucky Derby says the race will go on with fans. And the NFL moves forward with plans for fall season. Dr. Andrew Bezos is the founder and managing director of CrowdRx. It provides medical services and advice for live events. Dr. Bezos, thanks for joining us tonight. What do you think about this NFL plan? Roger Goodell, the commissioner, says they want to play this fall for fans, occupy the first six to eight rows with a tarp to separate the players from the fans. Could that work?
1: Well, I think we've been in the huddle long enough, and it's time to come out at some point and try to run a play, recognizing that we're going to have to adjust to testing and and what happens over the next month or two. Um, the last time I was on, we talked about, well, a couple months from now, things will be better. I just don't, I, I don't see us going forward worrying or, or thinking that we're going to have a change in the next month or two. So we all need to come to some type of a plan, execute it, and to be re- ready to, uh, you know, call an audible at the line.
3: What about the Kentucky Derby going ahead with fans at Churchill Downs? It is outdoors, which I assume makes it safer. Do you have concerns there?
1: Yeah, outdoors, by the way, is 20 times safer than indoors, just in general. Uh, I looked at their plan. I looked at the tennis plan, the WTT plan. They're looking at about 20% uh, of the normal capacity in there. Obviously, masks, uh, proper spacing. I think it's it's a good plan right now, and I think it needs to be looked at every day. I don't like to say right or wrong. It's a combination of a business plan, of the societal responsibility, of valuing the recreational part of it for uh, everybody versus the risk. And uh, uh, on the medical side, it's somewhat easy. We present the facts. We present the best testing possible, the best science, and uh, let the business owners decide from there.
3: James Dolan with an interesting op-ed. He's CEO of Madison Square Garden in the New York Post today, suggesting a benefit concert at MSG where they send people antibody tests four weeks ahead of the concert to screen who has antibodies? A lot of New Yorkers do, and then they get to, to come. Is that, is that a model that could work as we are seeing more spread in this country?
1: I think it's a model. I applaud innovation. No one knows the answer. I think Mr. Dolan is potentially onto something there. I personally wish I had antibodies. When, when I play tennis, if my partner's got antibodies, I'm, I feel much better. And I do think antibodies confer Uh, a level of immunity for how long, we can't say, but the vaccine when it comes about is designed to make your body create antibodies. So yes, I think antibody uh, positive people should get a special priority going forward. Um, I think there's a lot to be thought through with with that concert, but I I like the innovation. I like the aggressiveness. Again, I think as a society, we need to come forward and make a plan and stop waiting for in a few weeks or in a few months, because this virus is here. It's here for a long time. So we need a playbook. So I I applaud uh, looking at that plan.
3: You're going to have your hands full as these sports try to come back online. Dr. Andrew Bezos, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Here's what's coming up next.
5: Tonight, three business owners defying the odds and fighting to thrive. From a pottery studio to making invitations to selling books. How they're changing and adapting to keep their businesses alive. Their path forward in two minutes. American business owners, who thought they saw a light at the end of the tunnel, are now in survival mode once again. Cases rise, fear grows. People in this country stay home. Spending slows. Tonight, three business owners on their paths forward. Once again. Here's Sarah Eisen.
3: Welcome back, everyone. Our focus on America's independent businesses begins right now. Before we bring in tonight's owners, I want to introduce Stanford University Professor David Dotson, who will be with us to help give some advice to tonight's business owners. Professor Dotson, it's, it's good to have you back here. You're in the state of California, which has seen rising cases. You advise, I think, 32 businesses, many of them in that state. What are you hearing?
11: Well, there's a lot of fear right now because there was optimism, of course, about you know two or three weeks ago that things were opening up. But the data has been miserable about the increase in COVID cases. And everybody's debating, is it because there's more testing or is it because we have a second wave or we never got off the first wave? And it is petrifying business owners because unlike a few months ago when Congress showed a willingness to try to build a bridge to get to the other side, basically what they're hearing is no more bridges. So people are worried.
3: Are they seeing a drop-off in demand yet, given the rising case numbers?
11: Not so much that, it's just that they're not seeing the increase in demand that they were hoping for. So restaurants were thinking, okay, being open 50% capacity ain't great, but it's sure better than being shut down. And now they're opening up and they're saying, I don't know if I'm gonna be open at 50% capacity. These are the kinds of things that they're trying to grapple with. And then of course, we don't know whether there's gonna be sporting events and that means that no one's gonna buy hot dogs and beer. And so people are all wondering, not only is the, business, is the economy going to come back, but what is the slope of that curve? And the slope of the curve they thought was going to be like this, it's looking more like this.
3: Let's talk to one of those business owners, our first yeah. one of the night, from a beach read to a literary masterpiece. If, you're, if you've looked for something to read in South Florida, mm-hmm. chances are you paid a visit to Books and Books. Mitchell Kaplan is the owner, and he joins us tonight. Mitchell, I know you have a number of stores across Florida what have you seen from your customers as we have seen these case numbers rise in your state?
12: Well, first, Sarah and David, I want to thank you for inviting me on tonight. Um, it's a bit scary out there. Um, we have seen a rise over the last couple of days. I think today in Florida, there was a rise. Uh, we've had about 9,000 cases. Um, our customers are a little bit nervous. People who are in... Uh, who come to independent bookstores tend to be a little bit older, so they need to be really a little bit more careful uh, in their decisions as to what stores to go into. And in two of our uh, stores, we have restaurants as well, which also adds a bigger challenge. Um, I'm hopeful, though, that I think down the road, uh, people still do want to congregate And that is what we do as a community-based independent store. We're all about bringing the community together. And so when we get to the other end of this, and that's gonna be the whole trick is to how we get to the other end of this. But once we do, I think our customers will be coming back.
3: Mitchell, you know, it's, it's amazing that you've survived. So many small independent booksellers across America have been hit even before this pandemic obviously battling the online sellers like Amazon. How much worse is the outlook right now, given the shutdown?
12: Well, you know, I, I've been a bookseller for 40 years. We've been in business for 40 years. So we've been through it a, a lot over the last 40 years. Never anything this bad or this frightening. Um, but what's, what it's made us do, you know, independent booksellers are an extremely creative bunch. And what all of us have had to do is kind of reimagine who we are, and we have, you know, books and books overnight has had to become a virtual store. Our online store never shut down. Uh, we do, you know, we do 400 events a year with all kinds of authors. We're now doing virtual events, uh, which has been, which have been much appreciated by our community, and have, um, and results have come from that. So, you know, no, what, Mitchell, what I'm doing during this period as a business owner. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, Mitchell, I was thinking yes. about exactly that point.
11: You know, in, in, in business school, one of the things that we teach in strategy classes is this notion of a V-curve, which is you either want to be really large or you want to be really small, but you don't want to be in the middle, which in your business was kind of Barnes and Noble. And I've been thinking about the, the competitive threat that you have and the weapons that you have. And you were just talking about it earlier about how you convene people together and you have these three or 400 events that you hold every year with authors and speakers. And I'm thinking about that in terms of content. And, And if you think about that, you are a content provider. You also sell books, but you have this content. Think about all the organizations out there that are dying for content. Churches, synagogues, clubs, Ducks Unlimited. They've got members. And they want to be able to shove some information, some content, some speakers down there. So to the extent that you can build some bridges with these organizations, I would think that would be a way to take your Facebook page of 40,000 users and turn it into 140,000 users.
12: David, that's beautifully said. That's exactly what our mission is. We are constantly partnering with law firms, with churches, with synagogues. Um, that's exactly what we're doing. One of the things that we do, and we've done it for many, many years, is partner with the uh, the largest community college in the country where we put on this gigantic book fair called the Miami Book Fair, where we have yeah. 600 authors come. So you're exactly right. We, use, well, Mitchell, we the have other, to the look other thing to see what speaker. our core competencies are. Yeah, yeah. the other thing about this
11: V-curve is that people tend to think that software is for the big guys. And I want to say that software is the most democratizing technology out there. 20 years ago, you couldn't do what Amazon can do. Now you can do that. And you're an extra- extraordinary threat to Amazon because you now can sell books online and you can do the things that we were just talking about with the organizations. That is a scary thing for Amazon and something they didn't have to face 10, 15 years ago. So I would advise you to step on the gas on the online sales because I think you can be a formidable force against Amazon.
12: Well, I think you've just given us a brand new um, moniker that we can use on our bookmarks. Books and books, an incredible threat to Amazon. That's what I think we want to do from now on. Good to hear. Um, I have one other thought so, for you, so- but David, what you're saying is absolutely. True. I'm sorry.
3: Go ahead, Dave.
11: So, Sarah, what I was gonna what I was gonna ask Mitchell about was was how the PPP loan worked for you or didn't. And I understand that you used the PPP loan to bring employees back have them stay at home and do nothing. That sounds like you were the unemployment agency for Florida, not that the loan was used to help you get restarted again.
12: Well, that was what happened. You know, the PPP loan, we got it in the very first round, and unfortunately, we were closed down, which was the case with most small businesses around the country at that time. So for the very first part of the use of the PPP loan, we were basically taking the place of the Florida unemployment office, which unfortunately is not a very good one. So I was very happy to be able to do this for my employees to give them the help they needed to get through this very difficult time. I did keep a number of employees who came in because our online store was very vibrant. The community came out in droves to support us online. And you're right. they, they they transferred their, their their online business from Amazon to us yep. and to a lot of other indie bookstores as well. Yep. Good for you.
3: That's great to hear. And Mitchell Kaplan. The best of luck. We, Thank we appreciate you Sarah it and David. tonight really from Books and Books in Florida. It. You too. There's a lot more ahead Thank you. tonight.
5: No weddings. No fancy invitations, no business. How this owner is remaking everything. And
13: the whole company is a team of problem
5: solvers. How this company went from greeting cards to maybe saving lives. Before the break, our world on the 180th day of the coronavirus crisis.
3: Pop-up greeting card manufacturer Love Pop was hit hard by the pandemic. All of its retail stores were closed, employees furloughed. CNBC's Andrea Day tonight on how the business adapted, shifted, and succeeded.
13: We had uh, 10 locations um, open going into this and all of those are currently closed. Almost all of our wholesale partners are closed. We did have to furlough uh, some of our brand ambassadors which was very, very challenging.
11: With Love Pop's entire retail business shuttered overnight, co-founder Wambi Rose knew his pop-up greeting card company had to move fast.
13: This is the quickest turnaround, I think, in the history of the company. In about a week and a half, our designer, Elena, created this Thinking of You bouquet. The new
11: pop-up idea went live while most of the country was still sheltering in place, and real flowers were tough to find.
13: Just seen a really positive response on this. You know, people wanting to send um, send something fun and, and uplifting. And so um, this has been great. We make things. You know, we don't know anything about vaccines, we don't know anything about test kits, but we do know about making physical products. And so that's where we chose to, to jump in.
11: Love Pop shifted from making cards to making medical gear.
13: We have created and have just delivered our first batches of. 25,000 face shields. We're in the process of, of making several hundred thousand gowns that are going to hospitals in the Northeast. On our face shield design, we did find a way to love pop it. It's got a rainbow on the cover and says, "I'm here for you." The whole company is a team of problem solvers. That's what we do: designers, um, engineers, problem solvers. And so, this is just a different way to apply our problem solving talent. It's really just a different world, whereas before we might have had one forecast, now we have multiple, and we just have to make sure that all the decisions that we're making are robust to different scenarios. And it means a little bit more work, but it also means that we're thinking more critically about the decisions that we're making. And I think it's going to put us in a good position because as a smaller company, we're quite nimble. And I think that agility is what's going to enable companies to thrive
3: i'm andrea day cnbc rose tells us three of the 10 stores have reopened with more to follow in the coming weeks we certainly wish them well well weddings around the world and around the country have been canceled as the economy has had to shut down when things were seemingly about to pick up texas announced a pause in the reopening that's where wedding stationery so crafty studio is located and owner Maria Ferrer is worried about the future of her business. She's with us tonight. Maria, thank you for joining us tonight. Ha- has business picked up at all in any way?
10: Hi. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, yes, a little bit. But uh, right now, considering the current Texas situation, well, I I am pretty scared of the near future um, because basically a month ago things were starting to look even a little better.
3: How are people thinking about weddings right now? Are they planning their weddings?
10: Yes, they actually began uh, planning their weddings again, probably for fall and even for the end of the year. And everything looked great. Uh, But uh, right now, at this moment, uh, it's very uncertain.
3: Is there anything else you can do with the calligraphy and the, and the skills that you use for these invitations as a side business while weddings are on hold?
10: Uh, yes, I tried to create new products uh, to introduce them uh, through my Etsy shop in order to keep the shop active. And, uh, but in general, the business was very still. Uh, I think people were focusing on different um, things to invest on or probably that we're saving more money and not um you know buying things like art or gifts at this moment but yes I, I try to introduce a couple of different things to not be on hold all this time
11: you know maria thinking of thinking of what you and sarah were talking about there's this concept that we think about a lot when we're evaluating businesses which is Selling new things to new people, selling the same things to the same people. Basically, you think about you've got new products and the same products, new customers and different products. And it seems to me that you've got an interesting opportunity because really your core competency is not a wedding invitation. Your core competency is you make beautiful things on paper. And whether it's birth announcements or it's uh, corporate cards or it's high-end thank you notes, your core competence is making paper beautiful with words. And I would think that there's a whole market out there that is looking for what you have to offer. So my advice would be while you're waiting for the business, the wedding business to come up, start thinking about all of those new places that you could be doing business.
10: Yes, and thank you for that. Because um, I think that's, that's very accurate. There are many opportunities for me, uh, not only on the wedding industry, but in other areas. Uh, I've seen a little been struggling. Um, I've seen myself mm-hmm. struggling with some vendors. For example, if I have to access to specific kinds of papers, it's a really hard time to get them. But yes, th- there's, there's a good time to explore new opportunities like digital design. For example, it's another, mm-hmm. um, service that I included, uh, lately because, um, many people were actually sending, um, their postponements, um, just online to save some mm-hmm. money and then see later what to do with their actual date.
11: Yeah. You know, I was thinking about what it must have been like for you in February, March when you're getting those phone calls of people saying they're canceling their wedding. So, and then I thought, well, some of these people must have wanted their deposits back. So you not only had to have your uh, business reduced, but you probably were sending money back to customers. What was that like yes, for you and your I family? Did.
10: Uh, it was hard. It was a hard decision to take, but I had to think about not only my business, but the other, my client's position, because I didn't know, for example, if they were going to lose their jobs in the middle of this situation. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I decided to um, friendly uh, refound the deposits and offer, offer, you know, easy ways for them to come back to me when they were ready. Uh, but it was, it was really hard to see all the work go and sure go was. and go in just a week. It was really, really hard.
3: Maria, we hope it picks back up soon. Thank you for joining us to talk about it tonight. Thank you. Maria yeah. ferrer from So Crafty Studio in Texas. There's a lot more ahead tonight.
5: Next, remolding a business in the wake of all that's happened so far in 2020. We're back in two minutes.
3: Let's bring in our next business tonight. Jenny Tang, also known as Jenny the Potter, owns The Workshop, a pottery studio and school in Minneapolis. Jenny, thank you for joining us tonight. Sounds like you make some of your money from your own pottery and others from the classes. What's business like for you right now?
0: Well, it's... uh, uh... It's been a challenge uh, to say the least. So currently we're, we've got um, five students that are actively coming to take classes, whereas before when we closed, we had 75.
3: Is it, are you able to, to have these students take classes outside? How do you do it in a safe way?
0: Well, when we closed down, we took the opportunity to sort of reevaluate how we used the space. Uh, I'm fortunate that I have 1,100 square feet to work in. And so uh, we basically, I took, um, before this, I had 12 wheels. I reduced that quantity down to six. I started renting out the equipment that I had. And then I took those six wheels and I expanded them. So the um, the all of the statistics said that we needed to be six feet apart. And I took the opportunity to make it 10 or 20 feet depending on where you are in the studio and then limit people's uh, space to specific times and changing from a just drop in whenever you want to making appointments so that everybody has to schedule just like you would a haircut or any other service
3: i like this idea of a take take a home kit how does that work and is that a driver for you right now getting new business
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. So when our state shut down, uh, the governor was on air constantly talking about how important it was for Minnesotans to get out and take and do their part by getting takeout from restaurants. And I remember sitting in my studio saying, I make pottery. This is clay. How do you mm-hmm. make that a takeout? And then we decided to take sort of take a model that we had pre existing, which was to do uh, classes and uh, parties and make that a takeaway service. And so we did curbside delivery and we did, um, uh, we had people stop by, Girl Scout troops come where they were picking up multiple parties. Uh, People had birthday, like social distance birthday parties and we gave them kits with which that they could take home and they can work and then we give them the support for those kits. And then what happens is, is they turn around and bring them back to us. So those customers have an initial experience and then they have a return experience when they have to bring the kits back to us or we pick them up and then they have pottery at the end of it.
11: You know, Jenny, that's, that. not that really the, the strength and the inspiration of small businesses that you're able to make those kind of moves quickly given the situation that you have? And of course, no one was thinking about your business. They were thinking about travel agencies and hotels and restaurants, but not your business. But you made these moves. I'm. And it's amazing what, what small business can do. But I was thinking, You know, when someone probably comes to your to your uh, facility there, they're probably not coming there to become an expert at pottery, although they want to be really good at it. They're probably coming for an experience. They want to get their mind off something. They want to use their hands. They want to meet new people. And there's this concept called share of wallet. And if you think about your business as not necessarily providing pottery skills and pottery expertise, but giving people this life experience, then there might be all these other kinds of life experiences that you could also offer to those people who have said they want to buy it. So instead of them giving you $30 of their share of wallet for these life experiences, maybe it's $60 or $100 because they're coming to you for watercolors or they're coming to you for glassworks. And I'm wondering, given that, given that you have these people that want these life experiences, what else can you offer them?
0: That's a great question. You know, um, I've always said that ceramics is my wheelhouse. It's the place that I'm most confident. It's the media that uh, resonates with me the most, but I try to surround myself with employees that have skills in other areas. And so I think that would be a great opportunity to sort of tap into maybe some things that that they're interested in and having those as additional services as well.
11: Yeah, and for your employees, you know, you might even consider since you've got something that's working and that your community loves, whether you open up another one or you franchise it to a different neighborhood that, that those people aren't going to come to you, what an opportunity for your employees, too, because instead of them teaching one class on Wednesday, maybe they get to teach three classes on Wednesday. So you're providing more employment for your uh, workers as well as taking this concept that's working so well and bringing it to other communities in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area.
0: Yeah, I see my, my main role is to provide space for community building. That's what we do. People come in here to learn mm-hmm. clay. That's the skill that I have. That's the skill share that, that I can provide for them. But it's really about an exchange of ideas uh, between people and um, doing things with our hands so that we can creatively express ourselves. And then we do the work of community building and we meet our neighbors and we talk about what's going on in life. And we have plenty of things to talk about these days.
3: <laughs> yeah. Jenny Tang, Jenny the Potter, thank you for joining us tonight. We wish you lots of luck. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all of our business owners tonight. Thank you. Professor Dotson, I know you had some some new statistics on sole proprietorships to sort of wrap up our final thoughts here.
11: You know, I was thinking about Maria's situation, and she's a sole proprietorship. And so I had to look it up. It turns out that 77% of businesses in America are sole proprietorships, just like hers, representing $328 billion uh, in the US economy. And you know what? We let these people down because there was no support for sole proprietorships in the PPP program or the other programs. And so my heart goes out to people like Maria and the other 77% of American businesses who were kind of left behind over the last 200 days.
3: Dave Dotson, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Great to get your thoughts from Stanford. On this day, 180 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines for you. Texas and Florida rolling back some of the parts of their reopening, particularly when it comes to bars. San Francisco is delaying some business reopenings that were scheduled for Monday. And the Dow falls more than 700 points today. And breaking tonight, Coca-Cola says it's the latest to pause advertising on all social media platforms for at least 30 days For review. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. Have a great weekend and a good evening. American Greed is next.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.